We want to continue to worship through the study of his word now, so grab your Bibles with me. We want to go to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. We've been using this fall to walk through the book of Nehemiah kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at what does it look like to take new ground for God's glory in our lives, in our church, in our community. Um, we want to continue to be pressing forward with the Lord in all these areas, and so excited to do that again today. We're going to be looking at kind of a different topic this morning, uh, maybe than you might think, taking new ground through fear. Um, and so we're going to talk about different types of fear and how it can be good and how it can be bad, and, and hopefully that'll make, uh, make sense for you this morning as well. So to start this morning, I want to do a little illustration, but I need some help. So I need all of our kids uh, to come on up. Come on up here, guys. Come on, come on, come on. Hasn't it been great to have our kids in here the last couple of months with us? They've been doing so awesome. Just being up here. Come on up here, guys. I got a little something for you. So, any of you guys remember these from your childhood? You guys remember these? I don't know if we can call these Chinese finger traps anymore. Is that still like the uh, okay name? I don't know if that's allowed anymore, but take those for a second here, guys. All right. Oh, I dropped one. There you go. Get this over here to Lindsay. Get that one to Lindsay. There you go. All right. You guys know how these work? No? All right, take your fingers, take your two index fingers like this, and put them in, all the way in. Push them all the way in, they're real good. All right, now try to take them out. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're, they're somewhat, mine's actually not working very well, but, all right, so the idea is, right, you guys all know these work, if you, the natural reaction is when you put your fingers in is to pull them out, and if you pull them out, they get, what happens? They get stuck, all right? But if we do that same movement, instead of pulling out, if we push back in and then kind of hold the center and slide your finger out, can you do that? Push them in like this, push straight back in. Man, you really got yours going, girl. All right, there you go. All right. Get out there. All right, you guys can actually keep those. Those are for you, okay? I think, you, I think we made our point this morning. Can you give them a hand? Thank you. You guys can have a seat. So with the, with the finger traps, right, it's the same motion. If you push... If you pull out, you get stuck. If you push in, they, your fingers can then come out. So it's the exact same thing. It's just in opposite directions. Fear is the same way. Fear can be good or bad depending on which direction it is facing. And we're going to see that today in the text, looking at verses, the fear of man versus the fear of God. And this is something that Nehemiah has been kind of hitting on throughout the book, but we're going to really dive deep into it Today, this might be a little bit review for some of our ladies this weekend, um, but hopefully it will just reinforce what you've already heard. So let me give you a definition to get started this morning. This is a definition I got from a pastor several years ago that I thought has just been super helpful. Fear is the attitude of the heart that seeks a right relationship with the fear source. Fear is the attitude of the heart that seeks the right relationship with the fear source. So let me give you some examples. So let's think about a tornado, right? We're familiar with those here in Missouri. And so if I'm afraid of the tornado and I have a fear of what it's going to do, then I go down into the basement and I get myself safe and I get in a right relationship distance from the impact of the tornado, right? Unless actually you live in Missouri and then we all go stay on the front porch and watch it. But if we had the right relationship, we would be down in the basement getting away, right? Um, or maybe think about you know, when you were growing up as a kid, you had that fear of your father that led me to want to obey and submit to his rules so that I didn't incur his punishment, right? I was getting myself in right relationship with him and his authority. The same thing is true with us and God. 
If we have a fear of God, then it makes me at my heart get into a right relationship with who he is, his position, his power, his rules, his holiness. And I want to submit to him and I want to obey him because I recognize who he is. That's good fear. But sometimes fear can get turned the other direction and what we oftentimes call the fear of man, which then leads me to bow to worldly ideas, worldly commands, worldly threats from others in this world that we live in. And that turns me away from God and towards man. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble. You see, the fear of man often opposes the fear of God or even faith in God. Let me give you a couple verses here. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see the the juxtaposition there, right? Fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever puts their fear in the Lord is safe. Hebrews 13, 6, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If my fear is properly placed on God rather than man, I know that he is in control and I can trust him. It doesn't matter what anybody else says or does. And so if fear of man is oftentimes the opposite of faith in God, then we also can say that fear of man often is sin. Because Romans 14, 23 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Right? And so we need to look at this today and see how can I turn myself away from the fear of man into the fear of God because the fear of God is what leads me to eternal life, leads me to faithful discipleship, it leads me to walk in right relationship with who he is. So what we're going to see in Nehemiah 6 today is simply this. When I fear man, I sin. But when I fear God, I win. Same thing, fear in both directions, but which way it goes makes all the difference in the world. So here's the big question I want to kind of put over Nehemiah chapter 6 for you to think on today. You need to process this. We're going to see Nehemiah walk through four different attacks where he has the opportunity to fear man or fear God. And so the question for you as we walk through this is, who do I fear? I want you asking yourself that. Who do I fear? And there's going to be four, this is going to be a four-part diagnostic for responding to attacks that come against us and how we can respond with the fear of God rather than the fear of man. Okay? All right, chapter 6, verse 1, here we go. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So the first attack this morning is entrapment. Um, we could also maybe call this one distraction. They're kind of, it's kind of both tied together here. But I think entrapment's kind of the bigger category. Um, but we'll look at kind of both as we walk through this. It says that he, uh, they, the enemies that we've been seeing this whole time, Sanballat and Tobiah and these guys, they've heard that the wall is built. There's no breach left in it. So it's, it's completed and so now they know that the enemy can no longer stop the work, so now they're going to try to stop the leader, right? So now they're coming directly after Nehemiah, and they say, hey, come meet with us. We, we, we need to meet. We need to have a, a discussion. Let's meet in the plain of Ono. 
And this, if you, you know, if you kind of do the geography on this, this would have been about the halfway point between Jerusalem and Samaria, which where Sanballat was, which was kind of the, the ringleader of the bunch, right? And so he's like, hey, let's meet in the halfway point, which seems logical, it seems fair, but then Nehemiah says, but they were trying to do me harm. The plain of Ono was right at the very edge of Nehemiah's territory, where he would be most vulnerable to attack. And he knows that their intentions are not, are not good. Their, their goal is to isolate him and then to hurt his leadership, right? And he's like, you know what, if it's really that serious, we really need to talk, y'all can come to Jerusalem. <laughs> like, I'm good. He says, I can't come to you because I'm doing a great work. Nehemiah didn't fall into the trap of Sanballat and Tobiah because he was singularly focused on God and his mission. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew what his task was, where he was going, and he wasn't going to be sidetracked by this trap of distraction over here from Sanballat and Tobiah. In fact, they called, they sent, they called to him four different times. They sent messengers saying, hey, come meet with us, come meet with us. And he says, every time I answered them the same, Ain't nobody got time for that? That's what Nehemiah said. I, I'm not coming to you. I've got a work to do here. He would not allow their attack or their distractions to get him off task. He was focused on the mission of God. You see, distraction of the enemy can trap me in the fear of missing out. Oftentimes, this is what happens with this, this, these uh, distractions or, tra- or traps come at us trying to get us into this fear of missing out. Like, think about Nehemiah for a second here. For two months or more, he's been dealing with Sanballat and Tobiah. He's been dealing with these guys, always trying to throw a wrench in things. And it would be easy to think, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should just go meet with them. Right? Maybe this will finally be what puts it all to bed, and I can just, like, we can get this thing worked out, and they'll leave me alone and go away. If I just go and have the meeting, then it'll be done. Maybe I can just Get this, maybe there's an easier way. Maybe there's a better way than what I've been doing, the way God's had me doing it so far. Maybe there's a better way than, than what God showed me so far. And if I just go and have this meeting, then I can get this squared away and not have this problem anymore. But Nehemiah doesn't think that way. He doesn't entertain the distraction that would take his eyes off the Lord and off the work. So often I think we let the enemy distract us with another opportunity another option, another path that might look easier than the one that we're on, that might seem better than the one place where God has already put us and already said, do this. We're like, yeah, God, but that kind of look over there, that looks like that might be a better deal. And we're looking at these other options, thinking that we might be able to get a better deal than what God's given us. But when we do that, it takes our focus off the Lord. It takes our focus off the mission. And let me just tell you, any opportunity that takes your focus off God is no opportunity. It's a trap. It's a distraction from the enemy that's trying to get you away from what God has called you to do. And they might even be bad things. They might be good things. But if it's not the thing that God's called you to do, that he's put you there for, don't fall for it. I was thinking kind of back through my own life and, and try to come up with an example of this, and this is the one that kind of registered with me, and it's, it's more on the distraction side than the entrapment side, but I think it's still valid here. Um, so when I graduated college, I graduated with my bachelor's of, of, of science in psychology and social sciences, 
And I was a middle school, high school teacher for the first several years of my career, uh, teaching history and psychology. And, and while I was teaching, I found that what I really enjoyed even more than teaching students um, history or psychology was actually teaching teachers or helping teachers integrate technology into their classrooms and like help them be able to better teach using technology. And so I went back to get my master's from Mizzou in instructional technology. And so I, my plan was finish that degree and then transition to be a technology specialist in our school district where I would be working directly with teachers rather than students. So this was all going well. I finished the degree. I was waiting for an opportunity to open up at the district. And then my father, who owns a, a training consulting company, approached me and said, hey, I want you to come work for me. You can, you can do leadership training and project management training, and you can you know, work with these different government agencies and groups and, and businesses, and, uh, and you know, we, that would, that's what I want you to do. And so I kind of thought about it and prayed about it. I was like, this isn't really what I had planned. This wasn't what I was thinking. But it was going to give me a lot more time. It was going to give me a lot more freedom with my schedule to be able to do more ministry. Right then I was serving at the weekend on our, at our church and stuff, but during the week I was tied up at school. This would let me go on hospital visits and do more discipleship and meet with guys. And I was like, this could be a really good thing. And so, so I did. I took the position with my dad. And a week or two after I took the position with my dad's company, guess what opens up? The district had a technology specialist position come open. And I said, hey, are you still interested? Da, 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 da. And man, I so wanted to go for that position because that's what I've been working towards. That's what my goal was. But it was clear to me that God had opened up a path over here where I could be working for my dad, making money to support my family, and be growing in my ministry at the church. And so I had to pass on that specialist position. And and I'm glad that I did because the next two years I worked for my dad is what God used to continue to grow me in ministry and grow my heart for the Lord and grow my heart for discipleship, which eventually led us into full-time ministry, which eventually led us here to plant a church. If I would have been stuck in that school position for two years, and I couldn't do all that, who knows how that would have changed or derailed the path that God had us on for ministry. So that position, although it's what I originally wanted, was really a distraction. It was something that would have taken me away from the focus that God was giving me for that season in our life and for our family. And so I had to pass on it. This is just one example of how often the enemy will give us an opportunity that we like, that looks good, but it's actually getting our focus off of the Lord and what he's called us to. So if, that, if you feel that, if that's entrapment or distraction comes at you, here's the question, here's the diagnostic. Does entrapment lead me to fear missing out or focus on the mission? When entrapment, when distraction comes, does that lead me to, to get worried I'm going to miss out and then double back on what God's called me to do? Or does it say, no, God, you've called me to this. I'm focused on this. I'm staying right where you've called me to go. So that's the first attack is entrapment. Number two, let's look at verse five. They don't give up so easily, Sanballat and Tobiah. says, in the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up the prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports, so now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind." For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. 
But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Second attack is slander. Slander. So the first time, he, it doesn't work. He's not going to come meet him. So now they send an open letter on the fifth time, right? An open letter is now a public attack. Because an open letter, they would come into the, to the town square, basically, and they would just read them out loud in front of everyone, okay? Um, and in this open letter is full of vicious rumors about Nehemiah. Nothing true. It says, it's reported you intend to rebel against the king. You want to become their king. You're going to set up these false prophets to say that you should be the king. All lies. And if these were really true, they wouldn't bother sending this to Nehemiah. They would just go straight to the king and say, hey, this is what's happening. But they're not really trying to, to do that. They're trying to just taint public opinion about the leader of this great work. So they send this open letter and Nehemiah just simply responds, there's no such things have been done. <laughs> You're inventing them in your own head. You're cray-cray. That's basically what he told them. All right? None of this is true. Nehemiah just clearly and plainly denies the lies. But then notice what he does next. He moves on. There's no counterattack. He doesn't write an open letter back to bash Sanballat and Tobiah. He just denies the lies and he moves forward in the work of the Lord. He doesn't let the fear of man get him caught up in their mudslinging. He doesn't allow the fear of man and what they're saying about him to get him caught in the same sin of saying things back about them. Instead, he says, no, that's not true. And then he prays, God, strengthen my hands. Keep me on mission. Keep me on the work. Don't let me be distracted by what they're saying. Just keep pressing forward. He denies the lies, and then he leaves it with God. You know, slander of the enemy can create sinful fear when we try to manage other people's perceptions. Well, what if, they, what if they believe the lies, Micah? What if, what if they think poorly of me because of what this person has said? What are they going to think about me? What are they going to say about me? What if it spreads more? We feel this in, internal need to defend ourselves. But here's what I've learned and I'm learning as time passes on. Is that when it comes to character, when it comes to who you are, Truth and time go hand in hand. You can sling mud back all you want, and that's not going to prove a thing. But as you continue to walk in faithfulness to God, as you continue to walk in the measure of grace that Christ has given you, and you continue to follow him faithfully, over time, everyone will see who you really are. You don't have to worry about what anybody says. You know, this whole idea of an open letter, we don't really do letters much anymore. Have you noticed that? That's not really a thing. We don't have like the town square thing going on. But we do still have open letters today. They're called blogs and Facebook and social media, right? I mean, we see more attacks of slander and rumor and gossip online, maybe now more than ever before. Whether it be original posts or shares or retweets or 
fabricated stories or photos. It seems like someone is always getting attacked. And there seems to be this growing pressure in our culture that if that every person, every celebrity, every politician, every company, every organization has to weigh in on the attack, because if you don't give your opinion, then you're either complicit in it or you're irrelevant in the culture. So now not only is there this open letter attack going on, but now everybody else has to put their two cents on top of that for or against that person. And then one day, the attacks turn towards us. And someone doesn't like what you do or what you say, and the open letter comes at you in turn. And we, can we feel this need inside to adamantly defend ourselves, to stand up and say they're wrong, and then fire back with our own accusations or fire back with our own words of hurt. And all of this is happening publicly which is the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. You got a problem? Good. Go to that person in private. Go to them personally. Talk about it. Work it out and forgive one another. Thankfully, Nehemiah, he shows us a better way. Yes, we can and we should deny the lies. If someone lies about you, yeah, set it straight. But then move on and leave it with the Lord. Let God fight for you. Think about what Jesus did. When Jesus was attacked, when Jesus was slandered, which he was plenty, sometimes he actually kept silent. Sometimes he didn't even correct the lie. He was just like, all right, whatever. Other times he did correct the lie, but what he never did was he never attacked back. He didn't allow the fear of men and their perceptions to lead him into their sin of attack and slander. And now he calls us to do the same. So again, if you feel like this attack of slander is happening in your life, what do you do? How do you manage this? Here's the diagnostic. Number does slander lead me to live in fear of perceptions or forthright before God? Does slander lead me to live in this fear of what people are saying and what people are thinking and constantly having to defend my reputation? Or does it lead me to just say what's true and then trust God with the, with the rest and just walk in faithfulness and walk forthright with the Lord? That was the second attack that we see. The third one starts in verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. It says, Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, this is Nehemiah talking, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Third attack is deception. So here, Nehemiah is called to a meeting at the house of Shemaiah, 
who was basically a, a, a public leader, a, a prophet in Jerusalem. He was seen as, as one of the leading men in the city. And so he goes, and he has this meeting, and the prophecy that he gives Nehemiah is this. He says, you need to go hide in the temple because they're coming to kill you, which is really bad counsel <laughs> for a couple reasons. And Nehemiah calls him out right here. He says, are, are you serious? He says, should a man like me run away? Should, should I run away from the Lord's work? Wouldn't that say that I don't trust God in what he's doing, right? So I can't, I, can't, I can't do that. My trust isn't in what you say or what men say. It's in the Lord. He says, and furthermore, I definitely couldn't go into the temple. <laughs> I'm not a priest. That's not lawful for me. At best, I would be punished. At worst, I would be killed. There is no way I'm doing that. On both accounts, this counsel, this prophecy is completely against the Lord and against his word. So Nehemiah says, nope, I will not go in. I'm going to obey God, not men. I'm going to fear God, not men. And he goes on to explain, he says, he said this because he was hired, that I should be afraid and sin and get a bad name. He was working for the enemy. He was hired to give a false prophecy to try to make Nehemiah afraid and to pull him down. It's just straight deception. But it wasn't just him. As Nehemiah starts to pray again, we find out that also Noadiah and the rest of the prophets were all in on it too. And they're all trying to deceive him as well. He has this whole host of prophets trying to tell him that he shouldn't be doing this and to give him a false prophecy. So if you've got a whole group of people telling you you're wrong and that you, God's telling you to do this, how do you know that what they're saying isn't true? I mean, there's a bunch of them. There's just one of you. How do you know that their prophecy is false? The same test still works today. Any prophecy that contradicts God's word is false and not from the Lord. Period. No matter who says it, no matter where you see it, no matter how you hear it, if it contradicts God's word, it is false and has to be rejected because God never contradicts himself. Nehemiah knew that the Lord had told him, he had given him a word to build the walls and nothing was going to contradict that. You see, the lies of the enemy can trick me into sinful fear if I lack a firm grip on God's word. If I don't know what this book says, then I don't know when the lies are false. And that's where they get me. So many times I feel like I hear Christians take in things because they feel like it's a sign from the Lord or they feel like it's something from God before they've tested it against his word. How many times do you hear someone say, oh, well, you know, the, the, I, was, I was praying about this and this open door came and obviously it's an open door, so open doors are always from God. You do know God's not the only one who can open doors, right? <laughs> an open door, an opportunity, it's not always from the Lord. Check it against his word. Check it against what he's called you to and see if it's from him or whether it's another opportunity from the enemy where he's trying to lead you down a false path. 
Every book you read, every slogan you see, every little cute thing you want to put on the wall of your house, just because it sounds good and just because it makes you feel good doesn't mean it's from the Lord. Even if it's at a Christian bookstore. Can I say that? You've got to check it against God's word. This tells you what's true. Not all claims of faith are from God. Only God's word. Does it align with his word? Does it align with who he is? Does it align with his character? That's how you know. You have to know the word. This reminds me of an illustration. Some of you maybe have heard this before. It's fairly common. But um, when, when they train federal agents to detect counterfeit money, they don't train them by having them study the fake money. They train them by having them study the real money. The smell of it, the feel of it, the look of it, all of that. They train them and they get so familiar with the real stuff that when they see the fake stuff, they can spot it a mile away. Because right? they know what's true, they know what's real. The same thing is true with the lies of the enemy. You're not going to figure out if they're lies or false by simply studying what the enemy says. You have to know what God's word says. You have to compare it to the truth. That's when you know it's false. The greatest tool you have to stand against attacks of the enemy is knowing God's word as well as you possibly can. So here's your diagnostic for deception. Does deception lead me to respond in fear of what if or in the fortitude of God's word? Does deception lead me to respond in the fear of what if? Am I constantly thinking, well, what, what, what if this is true and what if that is true? And what if, am I constantly questioning all these other statements or am I going back to the, no, what does God's word say? Am I standing firm on the book, on the Lord? on his character, and saying, this is my measuring stick. That's how I know. And then next, here in chapter 6, before we get to the fourth and final attack, there's these two little verses in here that are so great. I just want to point them out. Look at verse 15. It says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Right? And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 52 days. The entire wall. No bulldozers, no cranes, no none of that. Like, just guys with hand tools building the wall. 52 days. That doesn't happen in human strength. This was a work of the Lord. They knew it, and all the nations around them knew it. And so it says they fell in their own esteem, that they were greatly afraid because they had seen the power of God at work. Here's the great truth in these verses, guys. The fear of God comes to everyone eventually. Everyone at some point sees the power of God, and understands the position of God 
And at that point, you have a choice to make. For some, that happens in this life. But if it doesn't happen in this life, if you don't come to fear God for his power and his position in this life, you will one day. In eternity, the Bible tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We just sang it in one of our songs this morning. But here's the problem. If you wait till then, it's too late. The question isn't, will you fear God? The question is, when will you start to fear God? Because if you wait past your final breath on this earth, the fear is not going to save you anymore. It's going to condemn you. We're all stuck in sin. We all have sinful hearts that are, that are pursuing our own ways and we don't fear God and we don't care what he says and we don't care about his holiness and we just want what we want and we want it now. And that sin separates us from a holy and perfect God. And we have no way to get back to him. No way to fix it. So God in his grace and in his mercy, he sent his son Jesus Christ to come to live a perfect and sinless life, and then to go to the cross in our place and die for our sin so that we might believe in him, so that we might take our fear off of the things of this world, we might take our faith off of ourselves and to put it on Jesus Christ and know that we can only be saved through him. And just to prove it to us, three days later he rose back to life to show us that he was God and he had conquered sin and he had conquered death and that he alone deserves our greatest fear because he's conquered everything this world has to offer. <coughs> but you have to make the choice now. You have to choose to fear him now. You have to put your faith in him alone now. If you wait till the end when you see him face to face and his glory drops you to your knees, it will be too late. So if you haven't made that choice yet, if you haven't yet put your fear and your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you, do it today. Everyone believes, everyone fears God eventually. One more attack here. Look at verse 17. Moreover, in the days, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoahana had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of this of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Keep going in chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. And the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. 
The last attack is simply this, betrayal. Betrayal. It says here that the nobles of Judah, the, the leaders, the top guys in the city, that they were bound to Tobiah. And we find out they're actually kind of bound in two ways. It says they're bound by oath, which would have been like a business agreement. But then they're also bound by family. They've had all this intermarriage thing going on, right? And so they've got all these family and business ties that has them tied to Tobiah, the enemy. And it says that they've been sending him letters about Nehemiah's work and about his words. They've basically been spying on Nehemiah and sending all the information back to Tobiah so he can use it to continue to attack him. And they turn around, they were speaking good deeds of Tobiah in Nehemiah's ears, trying to puff him up and make him sound like a better guy than he really was and give this false impression of Tobiah to Nehemiah. As I was thinking on that this week, it reminded me of um, like trying to set somebody up on a blind date. Um, and, then it, and then it reminded me of when I was a kid, my dad used to love the Andy Griffith show. Anybody remember the Andy Griffith show? You guys ever watch that? Old black and white, right? He really loved Barney Fife. And I remember there was this one episode where Barney Fife was trying to set Gomer up on a blind date. We got a picture of Barney and Gomer, just in case you don't know who we're talking about. Um, and so, so he's trying to set Gomer up on a blind date. And he comes to him and says, hey, you, you should go out with this girl. And Gomer says, okay, uh, is she pretty? And Barney says, she's nice, Gomer. She's real nice. And he says, okay, okay, but is she pretty? She's nice, Gomer. She's real nice. That's, <laughs> that's all he'll say. Just giving him this partial picture of who she was. That's exactly what the people were doing in Nehemiah. They're trying to give him a partial picture of who Tobiah is, to puff him up and to hide the bad parts, to trick Nehemiah into trusting Tobiah when he shouldn't. Nehemiah was betrayed by the city leadership. And so, in response, he says, you know what, it's time for some new leadership. <laughs> he says, I gave it to Hananiah and Hananiah charge over Jerusalem because they were more faithful and God-fearing than many. He chose these guys because they were more loyal to God than they were to men. They were fit for the task. And I love that the emphasis here is not on their ability not on their family heritage, not on their position. Their, the emphasis was on their character. What makes a good leader in God's kingdom is that they fear the Lord and their heart is set on him above all things. And so Nehemiah went and he found some guys like that and he put them in charge of the city because they had a right, humble relationship with God. You see, betrayal by the enemy can burn me with sinful fear of relationships if I hope in men more than God. Nehemiah was hurt. He had been betrayed. But he wasn't hurt to the point that it hardened his heart against all relationships. He knew, yes, men sometimes fail us. Has anybody else figured that out yet in this life? Anybody else experience that? That sometimes people fail us. Yes. But God never does. And so we still have hope. And we don't have to go into our little holes and hide from life because of failure of other people. Betrayal oftentimes makes us, in our humanness, it makes us want to put up walls, doesn't it? 
When someone betrays you, when someone does you wrong, you want to put up the walls, you want to insulate your heart, you want to press away so that it doesn't happen again and so you don't have to feel that pain, so you don't have to go through that experience again. And we, we keep distant all relationships. But when we do that, we're giving in to the fear of man and to the fear of man's sin. Instead of trusting in God and knowing that he's going to help me love them despite their failures. It doesn't mean that if you trust that somebody, they're not going to hurt you again. Or if you trust a new person, they're not going to hurt you at some point. They probably will. But the answer isn't that I fear man and I fear how they're going to hurt me. It's that I trust God that when they do hurt me, that he'll give me the love and the forgiveness to step through that with them and keep going. Now, just to clarify, I'm also not saying you have to keep going back to the same person and letting them hurt you over and over and over again. That's not what Nehemiah did, was it? No, he moved on. But he went and he found some other men, some other women who loved the Lord and feared God, and he put his trust and his friendship with them to move forward. So this is the diagnostic for betrayal. Does betrayal lead me to the to fear the failures of men or find faithful men of God? Does it lead me to put the walls up and fear all people because they're going to hurt me and push everyone away? Or does it lead me to push forward and to pray and to seek the men and women around me who truly love the Lord and are pressing forward with him and walk and step together? Four attacks, four diagnostics. They all have the opportunity to push my heart one of two ways, towards the fear of man or towards the fear of God. But we need to remember, when I fear man, I sin. When I fear God, I win. Guys, God's side is always the winning side. Always. And when we fear him and when we follow him, we get to be on his side. So when attacks come, when your heart is battling on how to respond and what to do, if you give in to that fear of man, it's going to lead to loss every time. But if I fear the Lord more, if I follow him no matter what, then he will bring us through victorious in his grace and in his goodness. And if we do that, if we fear God more than anyone, anything else in this world, we will take new ground in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families, in our businesses, in our community, in our church, in every area. If we are in step with the Lord and our eyes are on him and we're fearing him more than anything else, he will do marvelous things in us and through us. We have to get our fear in the right place. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord again this morning. Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight, this morning, sorry. And God, we, we praise you, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, we thank you, Lord, that your word reads us so well. 
Lord, in all these years, we haven't changed a bit, Lord. Humans are the same creatures that you made from the beginning. And our hearts are weak, and our hearts are flesh, and our hearts are failing at times. And we get so stuck in the fear of man that we get our eyes off of you. God, I pray that today, Lord, whatever attacks your people are feeling, Lord, whatever ways that the enemy is coming after them right now, God, that you would turn their hearts, Lord, that you would refresh their minds, Lord, that you would help them, Lord, to respond with faith in you, with a fear of God that trumps everything else. Pray, God, that you would change us take away the things in our minds, take away the things in our hearts, our desires, Lord, that lead us astray, that make us fall for these attacks. Lord, help us to look to you and to you alone. God, give us a strong, healthy fear of who you are. Give us a greater fear of you today fear that will help us stand. Grow our fear of you. Grow our faith in you. Lord, we know you are mighty. You are faithful. You are powerful, God. You will never fail us. No matter what the attack. Lord, lead us forward. We pray all of this in Christ's name.